Analyzing our first 39 episodes of our podcast we launched in 2021, the trend is pretty clear. Fraud, compliance, and crisis were the topics with the most downloads. Are these three episodes still relevant, also a few months later? Great to have you here. Corporate integrity, fraud, non-compliance, and cybersecurity. Would you like to... Understand the root causes, detect threats and take measurements to protect the most precious assets. As a leader, you need to be prepared and stay actionable in the event of an incident. Sonia Sternemann talks in her podcast, The Human Factor, Corporate Integrity Matters. To leaders and entrepreneurs who want to have impact, foster corporate integrity and act as role models. As an international expert for corporate governance and integrity, entrepreneur, and independent board member, she knows the challenges. Let her inspire you. Welcome back to this new episode of the podcast, The Human Factor Corporate Integrity Matters. After our holiday break and smoothly landed in 2022. You might be a board member, an investigator, an auditor, internal or external, a corporate integrity leader or on your way there. What we all have in common, we strive for leadership with integrity. I'm your mentor and sparring partner when it comes to corporate integrity with impact. Founder of Corporate Integrity Concepts with a different formats for corporate integrity leadership. And the vision to protect and secure assets, reputation and actionability, yours and the one of your organization. Why? Because corporate integrity matters to all of us. And when we analyzed the scoring of the podcast episodes, it was interesting to see what you as our listeners downloaded most. Fraud, crisis, compliance. These episodes were the ones resonating most. Therefore, after a short reflection on where we stand now in January 2022, you have the chance to listen to the main parts of these three episodes in our today's special edition. Is compliance in crisis needed? This was the episode with the most downloads. But not only that, I also had several discussions within the leadership circle, but also with our clients, peers and professionals in the wider network. Secondly, the fraud triangle and its function as the partner in crime for any professional who would like to improve a decision-making process. For the one with you, who already know me, I like tools, methods, frameworks and gadgets. And the fraud triangle can be seen as a Swiss army knife or an emergency kit. Not only be used when we investigate, there are many other occasions where it also helps to clarify situations and build hypotheses. Why we are all fraud risk factors scored as number three in our top 10 list of most downloaded episodes. It tells me that our listeners really care about what are the potential sources of fraud risks and like to understand what part we as leader play within that. With these three episodes, we cover the tool, which is the fraud triangle, the leadership part, where we reflect the impact, the so-called human factor, and the bigger question we all must ask ourselves, is compliance in crisis needed? By reformulating how compliance is needed in crisis, we need the two main other parts clarified in advance, which means 
Understanding the human factor of fraud risk enriched by the supporting methods and tools like a fraud triangle. The answer to how compliance supports in crisis is given. Yes, compliance in crisis is needed and the art of how to adapt compliance in crisis is what makes real leadership alive. And now let's dive into the different episodes. Is compliance in crisis needed? A question we should ask ourselves seriously. I'm convinced that this type of question is crucial for us because it could put our strategy and business at risk. But wisely managed, it becomes one of the key success factors. Implicitly, we learn a lot about the different perspectives managers have and adapt, how this could end up in misbehavior harming our corporate integrity. As mentioned, I was asked a question by a CEO in my network, a serious guy, and he knew exactly why he brought up the topic. He was looking for social proof outside of his organization. And that is something which happens quite often, and I also see in our community of leadership circle. It is very supportive to hear the opinion of peers not being in the same organization. The blind spots we all have Turning by always turning into the same crowd can be very counterproductive. The CEO also wanted to raise awareness in his organization. Speaking out a taboo is more convenient if it is reconfirmed by an external expert. I think this was also what he wanted to receive from me. And for the ones who know me already, you know the answer I immediately gave. It was quick and to the point, why not? In my opinion, more than ever. And this question is what I call a typical thought by everybody asked by nobody question. I think you know what I mean. And you have a lot of such questions also in your environment. And that's what I ask you back. When have you been lost in the situation You raised such a thought by everybody asked by nobody question. And did you get an answer to it? Or have you been confronted with one? And how did you cope with it? Is the necessity of being compliant something you or your organization questions during crisis? The beauty of the podcast format is that you answer the question just for yourself and maybe bring it back to your organization. You don't have to answer it for me. You just make that for you and your own protection. The idea of eliminating compliance due to crisis reminds me back to the old days when I was a child. Haven't we always tried to profit from exceptions? For example, the exception to stay up longer when guests were at our house. We always tried it because it was an exception and I expected that I can stay up a little bit longer. But eliminating compliance due to crisis implies a rather immature behavior of business leaders. In this episode, I will not focus on all the different excuses I hear when it comes to prevention, controls, compliance, as it would be just too long, but promised. There will be episodes in the future where I take up the excuses, illusions and biases, putting our organizations at risk. 
When we put the interest of eliminating compliance into the big picture, there are different angles for that. Excuses of not being able to comply are always very easy at hand. For example, exceptional circumstances, which could be possible. Lacking resources, also possible, or just other priorities. We all know that the topic itself belongs to, to the responsibility of the board and executive committees. So the awareness needs to be given here. And the tone at the top in res respect of being compliant in crisis is key. And we exactly talk about that. My answer was short. Why not? More than ever. This was only the outcome of, a much more of much more thoughts behind. The impulse, why not, triggers further reactions because implicitly, is compliance possible in crisis would mean dear shareholders and stakeholders, in crisis all agreements, regardless of their form, are void. True to the motto, it's none of my business. You agree This does not tie into all we pursue in our responsibilities. In my view, this is an answer that neither the individual, the organization, the economy or society, nor our culture can or better said, should tolerate. And therefore, I came up with yes and. Yes and, so I finished my answer with yes and more than ever. Just reflect for yourself. Who trusts you and your company to take business protection and security seriously and to do everything possible to guarantee it? Isn't it your shareholders and stakeholders? They trust you. How do, we, do you protect our so-called crown jewels, the company's most precious assets? What do these assets include? I'm often asked. Tangible and intangible assets. And very important, which most people are slowly but surely becoming aware of, our data. So we, as business leaders, we have to take care about these assets. So to make the context clear, I'm talking about business-driven compliance in the corporate sense and not about the reduction to purely regulated requirements. This would not be enough. Every organization, regardless of its size, it's based on unspoken, spoken, documented and undocumented rules. These rules are designed to protect your organization and its vision. This has been the case for thousands of years and it's still a proven recipe. So why should we change that now? And as you might already know, I prefer to bring parallels to the business world and especially when I talk about rules, compliance, risk and governance. It helps to understand the underlying goal, the intention and it nails it down. And what I learned is if I am not able to explain something to a five years old, I will risk that anybody understands it when I explain it. Imagine, and that's what I would like to do with you now, I will bring you back to a parallel world of business and then coming back to our business world again. Imagine a picture 
with people who let themselves be told something. Ten crew members sitting close together. Yes, of course, before the pandemic, it was the year 2008. Can you imagine what it is? It is the instruction of a crew on a ship that is foreign to them, and that must be transferred from St. Martin in the Caribbean Sea to Portugal in Europe. Beautiful weather. There were indeed countless activities which could also be on the radar of the crew, and maybe more interesting than just listening to the instructions, to the safety instructions. So, why do they do that? Who are they doing it for? The law? The auditor? The supervisor, authority or regulator? Nope. They just do it for their own safety. They are preparing for the crisis. When I set sail with this crew to across the Atlantic, we all had a common goal. To arrive safely in Europe after more than 3,500 nautical miles. The initial situation we had was as following. We did not know each other. We transferred a boat which wasn't ours. We did not know from experience about the expertise and skills of the other crew members. So it sounds like in business. The first thing we defined was our rules of conduct on board. So maybe it rings a bell. Let's talk about the code of conduct. We also defined checks on compliance with these rules and the procedures to be followed in the event of an emergency, which is a so-called crisis. Hmm? Does it sound narrow-minded what we did there? I think not. No. It is and it was necessary if you have the common goal of bringing the crew and the ship safely to Europe in mind. You may ask yourself now, did we cultivate a culture of trust? Of course, yes, and, and that's the and I already mentioned before. You remember the question I received, is compliance in, in crisis possible? This is where we started. The reason or almost excuse for not having been compliant in the business world or crisis. But coming back to the case study at sea, I told already beforehand that we on the boat have defined controls on the rules of conduct. We did not call them that. We, we, it was not written down. We defined them based on the risks and alongside the processes, orally. That's the reason why we needed to have the instruction. I'm happy to share some examples with you here and maybe also in further, for further episodes we are going to have together. The team of two, that's just one example, which oversaw the ship for four hours. This was our, our rhythm we had, always had to keep to the course to be sailed. That's just the navigational part. Simple, isn't it? But it is a rule and we had to stick to it. Also, another one which was very important that I could tell you more stories about that is every 30 minutes, 
the whole boat was checked for irregularities on deck by one person while the other person was on steering. Who did we do this for? For our safety and the seamanship. All sailors among you know how many rules we have to follow to our own safety. What do these safety net in our companies look like? So we are now back in business. I'm pretty sure that with analogies like the one mentioned before, we are raising awareness and understanding why compliance is even more important during crisis. As a result of the current crisis, priorities have been redefined into the so-called crisis mode of those responsible, consciously or unconsciously. There is a strong suspicion that this happened unconsciously in many organizations, which increases the risk of misallocation of their resources. For example, projects in compliance management systems, fraud risk assessments, fraud management, incident management, and so on, were stopped, not started, or completely aborted. Any measures that have been decided are therefore not implemented, which in turn increases the opportunity and thus the risk of non-compliance, regardless of the pattern. And by the way, it also includes the whole range of cybersecurity issues. It needs a culture of integrity rather than only a culture of trust to succeed. Many companies, especially in the international environment, have successfully implemented the transformation towards corporate integrity too, or are on the way to doing so. As per my understanding and what I see out in the field, this requires courage and leadership, which means personal responsibility. From my point of view, especially in crisis, This is the most important character character traits of all those involved across all hierarchical levels. The conscious movement towards a culture of integrity consists of different components and begins, at least, with the role model function, the walk the talk we all have as business leaders. We need the integrity of those responsible, the tone at the top, means by the board, board itself, but also the individual board members. The strategic sponsorship is key for integrity by the board and the C-level. The binding nature, nature and reliability of implementation needs to be taken serious. It means you have measurements, you have sanctions in cases of misconduct. And the so-called speak-up culture needs to be implemented by all roles and functions. And the further, uh, further advantage, as current, currently public cases demonstrates and can be read every day in the news, corporate integrity also enables rapid adaption to changes like technologies or crisis. For the compliance of a company, this means not waiting for what is required from a regulatory perspective, but evaluating what is needed to be successful on the market in the next decade, decades. 
The question is not whether compliance is possible in crisis, but how. So creating a culture of integrity during crisis overburdens those responsible. Promised. And then it's just too late. For this reason, it is crucial that it is continuously established and lived over time. Regardless of whether the auditor checks compliance with the regulations, it is not only regulation-based, what I'm talking about when we talk about corporate integrity. I think now it's really, it's already time to come up with my final th tips and insights. We started with a question, is compliance possible in crisis? My answer was, why not? Yes, and more important than ever. And how are we now going to implement what we have heard into practice? I always suggest to make it as tangible as possible. Otherwise, we as humans do not get into action. So have you analogies from your world to make compliance more tangible to your audience, your stakeholders, your team? If not, of course, you can share the story I brought up here. That's my personal story and you can share it, how we acted as a crew bringing the ship from the Caribbean Sea to Europe. The following three key facts are an easy start for the conversation with your peers and in your organization. And it will already work towards awareness and prevention. First, Shifting priorities due to crisis at the expense of compliance exposes the organization to increased risk, so please avoid it. The ability to adapt, adapt strengthens the resilience of companies and enables them to survive this crisis. So please take a look at your resilience within your firm, but also your own resilience. Social control intervenes better in crisis due to the increased individual pressure. So we will also talk about this pressure topic in more detail in one of the upcoming um, episodes, but also what we have learned now during this crisis of more than 12 months, the social control changed and also the behavior of the people. So ask yourself and your organization how Do these three key areas of prioritization, adaption, and social control work together to protect your business? And please do not forget what you implicitly already know. Business-driven compliance remains the number one competitive advantage, especially in times of crisis. And compliance should be set up as the business protector and not just from a regulatory standpoint. My personal conclusion is that the purpose-driven compliance is just needed in times of crisis to protect assets, no matter which are important to you. You define it, you name it, and you make sure that these assets are protected. Especially in crisis, we depend on social control. And I can tell you, that if someone in our seamanship had not done what we had agreed before, things would have been very uncomfortable. And everyone saw that the rules which were supposed to protect us were respected. So we also had our social control on the boat. In terms of compliance, that means that misconduct is addressed and reported. 
The still frowned up speak up culture uncovers and protects. So think for a moment about a situation or an organization in your direct sphere of influence that could take a turn for the better here. I personally trust that the knowledge of the processes in the old world alone are not enough, but requires adoption to the new requirements. Therefore, facing constant currently also crisis-related changes, which lead to an increase in fraud cases, non-compliant cyber attacks, more than a culture of trust is needed. We talk about corporate integrity. Do you know why the Fraud Triangle is your partner in crime? Find it out and use that important tool not only when you are investigating. Whatever I have experienced over the last two decades of working in an environment where fraud is a daily business is that having a profound knowledge about the fraud drivers is key to understand the root causes and of misbehavior. When we look back where the term white-collar crime comes from, which is explained in detail in episode 5. We know that occupational standing plays an important role. Edwin Sutherland defined the term as following. Crime committed by a person of respectability and high social status during his occupation. With that common understanding, we go one step further to understand the different drivers which are based on Donald Cracy's thesis, which include, first, a person of trust, Second, financial problems. Third, individual value system to justify the action. That hypothesis will lead us to further analysis of the three drivers. And here I also like to mention the common beliefs I hear when I introduce the fraud triangle in companies, teams or classrooms. Yes, it is a very simple tool. In my opinion, that's exactly the beauty of it. There are so many other approaches and tools out in the field when it comes to fathoming the causes of economic crime that when we speak about diamonds, cylinders, triangles and squares, each approach will probably have its own justification. But the basis, however, is the original fraud triangle which was explored and developed by Donald Cressy in the early 40s as part of his dissertation. What I have learned is that the easier it is to understand, the more often such tools are used. And that is exactly what I want to achieve with the fraud triangle. I would like to have it implemented as, in as many teams and organiza organizations as possible to improve the awareness. Often, the simpler the tools, the better the results. Also here, we reduce the risk of false application by reducing it to the max. And if you would like to know to whom such tools like the fraud tangles are addressed, my spontaneous reaction would be to everybody. Because you can already start explaining it to your kids. That is what I, what I suggested a manager a few weeks ago and he came back with a very resonating story how he introduced the fraud triangle to his daughter. More about that in a few minutes. So let me tell you this. The manager was part of a workshop we held a few weeks ago, of course, virtually due to the ongoing pandemic we are currently in, when this podcast episode was recorded. During that workshop, the fraud triangle was one of the focus topics. And at the end, we also reflected on how they could now implement what they have learned back in their organization. 
What I usually like to do is to break a complex topic down to make it understandable to, to a five years old um, child. I'm not saying that we need to oversimplify, but to make it radically clear, and that is what will stick at the end to anybody. So the manager decided to explain the fraud triangle to his daughter by using the misbehavior of stealing or borrowing or however you would like to name it if a child is doing that. So it was a stealing of ice cream from the freezer. I'm not yet going, going to all the details of this story, but at the end of this episode, I will do so promised and you will hear what he told her daughter. Keep the ice cream in mind over the next few minutes when I explain the fraud triangle to you, to you as a grown-up business leader. So let's take a step back and think of fire as a metaphor for economic crime. I will now use that metaphor for the next few steps. In order to prevent, prevent fire from breaking out, it is important to know what could start a fire and how to prevent it from breaking out. These conditions are also essential in understanding how to create effective and efficient anti-fraud programs or how to conduct risk assessments as such, taking into account the different perspectives. The theory of the fraud triangle supports those responsible along the entire life cycle of white-collar crime and economic crime and is applied in practice as a procedural method in various stages of the First, prevention, then detection and reaction, which needs to be um, identified. It's also part of the risk identification process, how we generate hypotheses and how we prepare and conduct our interviews, or even though how the identific identification of relevant sources of information is done. So let's start with the first leg of the fraud triangle. So it's the motive. Do you remember back what is meant a trusted persons become trust violators when they conceive of themselves as having a financial problem which is non-shareable. That is the motive. In metaphors, a motive is the heat and thus the strongest element of the fraud triangle. The motive pushes the individual to find a way to eliminate the perceived uncomfortable initial situation, so-called pressure, and to satisfy the needs in this regard. In the case of Cressay's hypothesis, this is the financial problem to be solved without involving a third party. It could be a personal, personal pressure from family, friends or society to achieve and or maintain a certain standard of living. That's also what we see when we directly discuss with the fraudsters. It could also be that they need to achieve a certain targets, maybe on the part of the employer, in order to receive the promised bonus payment as a result. Or it could also be the external pressure due to changes in the economic situation, the competition you have out there, and how you depend on customers, for example. Or maybe it's also some kind of addiction, financing addiction to gambling or drugs or whatever in order to be able to keep it um, as long hidden as possible. Maybe it's also a lack of money due to expensive medication that has to be financed or for a sick, for a sick family member. All these are motives which we hear from our fraudsters. According to research, 
the motives of crimes are very often relationship-driven, also in the case of economic crimes and cybercrime. This means that it is about relationship constructs such as from and to ex-partners, jealous partners, school or work colleagues, or of course, also employers and other employees. The fact that a loyal and long-term relationship is also entered into between employee and employer, depending on the cultural background, should not be disregarded when, when, when you are going to analyze the motives. Often it's a very... Uh, it is really underestimated and you have to make sure and you have to keep in mind victims and perpetrators usually know each other already for a longer time. The second leg we talk about in the fraud triangle is the opportunity. Do you remember the second driver that we discussed last time? It was described as being aware of this problem can be secretly resolved by violating of the position of financial trust. An individual with, with a motive cannot commit a white-collar crime if the opportunity is not given. Opportunity is, with the metaphor I, am, I already started with, in reference to the fire, the fuel that makes the fire start and burn. The business model, the industry, as well as the structures and processes influence the internal control system of every company. This gives even more or less opportunities that can be used due to the professional position somebody has in. So the examples of opportunities and access are non-existing control mechanism, high turnover rates in key functions, Establishment in high-risk areas, depending on the regulations and standards to be complied with, for example, FCPI UK Bribery Act or the OFAC, and a lack of segregation of duty. And this is one of my favorites, as I get so many excuses on that. And that's, that's really one of the most important parts to, to take care of, the segregation of duties. And also overly complex organizational structures and transactions. So the opportunity can, due to the considerably increased regulatory and legal requirements in the, in the past 15 years, be the most easily prevented procedurally and technically part within the framework of internal control systems. So this is the opportunity can really be managed. The introduction of a collective signature power already massively reduced the risk of fraud by internal perpetrators. But however, it must be considered that it is not the number of implemented controls that is decisive for the reduction of risk, but the design of these controls. Often I see there are too many controls which do not support the business at all and do also not prevent from fraud. So the identification of effective risk-minimizing controls is of great importance and requires comprehensive knowledge in white-collar crime patterns, including the topic of non-compliance and cybercrime. Often that's forgotten. The opportunity in the form of access to relevant data case plays also a key role in the territory of cybercrime. So without the authorization or opportunity to obtain a cybercriminal's modus operandi is comp compromised. 
So there are many different methods of gaining access, like, for example, by withholding access authorizations, keys, badges, user accounts, or by using social engineering methods that enable the perpetrators to obtain sensitive data. And when we now go to the third leg of the fraud triangle, we talk about the rationalization. Do you remember the hypothesis on the rationalization? It was described as and are able to apply their own conduct in that situation, verbalizations which enable them to adjust their con- conceptions of themselves as trusted person with their conceptions of themselves as users of the entrusted funds or property. In metaphors spoken, the air or one's own justification keeps the fire burning. This third leg of fraud triangle is one of the most complex when it comes to anticipating and mitigating it. Please do not forget, the human brain is conditioned in such a way that no actions are taken unless they they can be um, rationalized. Remember when you last time rationalized something for you, for your behavior? And this begins with the simplest actions and ends with the most essential decisions. This is also the case when it comes to not complying with guidelines, regulations and laws. These actions and justifications are rationalized to oneself and compared with the individual value system and personal beliefs. Recording and assessing this value system and its beliefs is highly relevant in the context of recruiting key positions for your organization. Often, it's not taken into consideration. But that's a topic we are going to discuss in one of the further episodes in the future. So the human factor with the potential to pose a risk or danger becomes more tangible through these components or rationalization. In practice, the justifications that the investigators learn from the perpetrators during the investigations are of particular importance because they allow the, uh, allow the hypothesis to be further developed, give clues to possible evidence and make it possible to read the offenders in terms of profiling. In the three legs of the fraud triangle, it can be said that they are very closely interdependent. They all go together. As mentioned at the beginning, fire requires requires several components to burn and stay burning. The same is true for white-collar crime. And the saying we have in our industry is, circumstances overrule morals. Because if these three conditions exist at the same time, the risk that an individual will be tempted to commit a white-collar crime increases to a maximum. As soon as one of the three legs breaks away, the act does not take place. An action does not take place until the individual has rationalized and justified it for himself or herself. Without opportunity, an individual cannot follow their own motivation even if the justification exists. Likewise, without the motivation, no individual will come up with the idea of justification, nor would this be possible without the driver of motivation. And finally, without motivation, no one will look for useful opportunities. 
So based on Donald Davidson's insights into the interdependencies of the three drivers, concrete measures for practice can be derived. To ensure effective fraud risk management, it is necessary to focus on the elimination of at least one of the three drivers. So the ultimate goal should be to eliminate all drivers, which in practice requires a high investment of resources and is therefore an illusory. Nevertheless, it is important to consider these three drivers and their interdependencies at different locations in the organizations and their processes and to initiate appropriate measures. One of the core elements remains the screening of third parties, so individuals and also legal entities, through background investigations. So the risk of becoming a victim of fight-color crime can never be completely eliminated, but active management of the drivers in the form of comprehensive fraud risk management can significantly reduce it. So also the fraud Revenge is in particular one of the motives of cybercriminals. And the fraud triangle subsums the feelings of revenge, primarily due to a lack of appreciation, confirmation, attention, in its various forms on the aspect of justification. So the justification is not always clear from the outset, neither for the cybercriminals nor for the real world perpetrators in a non-virtual um, environment. It often only established itself in the course of the crime. And after crossing the magic border between legality and illegality, a justification for one's own actions, very often contrary to one's own values, is worked out. So for this reason, the motives and justifications can neither be kept razor sharp apart in the real world, nor in the territory of cyber. They always go together. They always go together, but the opportunity can be separated. So, with the human success factor at the center, motivation as a driver of white collar crime and non-compliance becomes the most relevant and thus essential adjusting screw that needs to be identified, understood, and adjusted. With the driver as a drivers as a basis, the manifestations and patterns of fraud are created to achieve the goal. The driving forces, as outlined in these sections, allow the perpetrators to be creative and no less innovative in pursuing their goal, be it as a lone wolf or as a group. So do you remember now the ice cream story of the manager at the very beginning in his explanation, the fraud triangle was equipped with the following underlying example. The opportunity for the daughter was, she was alone at home for half an hour while dad walks the dog. That's the opportunity. The motive, I'm starving. The rationalization, I'm not allowed to take a slice of bread because it is dangerous to play with a knife when I'm at home. When I'm at home alone. I'm not allowed to cook something when I'm alone at home. My brother had an ice cream the other day while I was at school. So you see, I'm sure you could also go along with other examples to explain the fraud triangle to any audience, starting from the kids over to employees, managers, executives and board members. It is always interesting to observe when the, fraud, the real fraud cases are uncovered with the three legs of the fraud triangle.
you remember the opportunity, the motif and the rationalization. Especially to hear the explanation to these le three legs from the fraudster itself. The pure human factor is playing the key role in the fraud triangle. And not only there. Let's have a look behind the scenes and find out why we are the main fraud risk factor. We all should keep in mind why this topic is important for us, because if we do not, it could destroy our reputation, organizational value, and for those of you caring about finance, it will also decrease our margins and profits. And I think that's important enough to protect. As you might already have heard in the last episode, my professional journey started in 1992 and since then I'm exposed to hundreds, if not thousands, of real cases out in the field. I am observing how the new technologies are blamed. Sorry to say that, but digitalization did not start a few years ago. It all started decades before. The intense discussion with my peers, my clients, but also within our integrity circle underpins the importance of the topic. And if, if it is important for them, I think it could also be important for you as a listener. That's the reason why I like to bring the topic here too, and not to keep it in our community only. As most of the topics questioning behavior, also this one is a sort of a taboo. Managers often don't like to talk about, especially not in public. It is much easier to blame technology, processes, than agreeing that also we, as a human, could have fraudsters in our rows. We don't want to blame people. We rather like to find it in the technology. Often it is seen as a failure if we do not have the right people in our teams. The taboo is just one part of, the negle of neglecting what is going on. But also the excuses why it cannot happen to us is very common. And I always have to smile by myself because it could happen to everybody. It remembers me back to the days at school when the excuses were not as creative for being late. You remember? But I can tell you it could really happen to every organization every exposed um, person, every business leader. And you will hear a lot of cases during the upcoming episodes too. Of course, always fictive, but with the patterns you understand what's going on. And even more details in our Corporate Integrity Academy are discussed. Or if you are already a part of a board or a C-level, also in our Integrity Circle. I would like to put the fact of we as humans are a risk factor in fraud into the big picture because it's not that easy. Because from a responsibility aspect, it definitely sits at first hand on board and executive level to supervise, give direction and lead a team and organization. It is the so often recalled tone at the top. When we have a look at the processes, we have to make sure that we bring the knowledge in at the very beginning and monitor it on an ongoing basis. So also processes are key. 
be careful and aware of the fact that, as a human, we are a so-called Swiss army knife, the secret weapon, which could also harm and injure if not properly used. And for all the ones who know the different functionality of a Swiss army knife, exactly know what I'm talking about. It is a matter of corporate culture, how the perspective on the human behavior, Swiss army knife, within the risk management is set. For me, the power of human being is demonstrated at the client's organization. And I would like to come up with the first fictive case here in this podcast. So sit back, imagine a more than 60,000 employee big company, privately held and still led by the founder in the first generation. They are globally active. She, as the founder, strives for integrity and is an entrepreneur by heart. She loves what she does and she has a big vision and she already mastered a lot of challenges before. She wants to be the best in class and therefore they already implemented. First, a compliance management system, an internal control system and of course the four eyes principle, which is part of it. And also when it comes to signature power, they follow best practice. So basics are done and even more with the comprehensive compliance management system. But when it comes to the essence and we talk about the details of the code of conduct, which which is just one element, but a key element I will always bring up again because it's so important that we understand what what could happen if we don't have one. The code of conduct for that organization is in place. Everybody understands it differently. What happened there? What kind of risk is the founder and her organization exposed to? Just reflect about that, that you have a code of conduct and nobody understands what's written there. The daily business life, how they understand to conduct business overrules the good intention of the founder. But what happened? How was that possible? I would like to analyze the fictive case on different levels, on three different levels. First one, pressure. We have to question what is the missing part or was the missing part. People were not asked during the implementation phase, nor when they set up the code of conduct. Nor did they understand how the code of conduct impacts the business and their role and function. We, as a business leader, cannot take it for granted that our employees understand what we have in mind, especially if it's not clearly formulated. It's just impossible for them. And I think sometimes also our peers do not understand what we have in mind as long as we are not able to formulate it and bring it to paper or screens or whatever these days. Means also the implementation phase did not cover all the necessary aspects. The key elements were missing. It was just not on the radar. They were not aware of what is missing and it was not done consciously, of course. 
if they would have known what happens out there with this code of conduct, or better, what does not happen, they would, of course, have taken um, another path to do so. This was pressure. The next one is corporate culture. Corporate culture shapes behavior and the key questions to be asked, which are just initial ones, are people ever allowed to be critical? Or is this an issue? Do people get enough information to do their job? Are they able to do their job? Do people care about their duties and responsibilities on a more holistic level and not only for their single tasks? Or is it maybe a culture of it's none of my business or it's none of your business, you don't need to know more? Can employees trust their co-workers, superiors and owners? And if not, why not? These are just a few initial questions to start with when we talk about corporate um, culture. More would be needed if you really intend to work on your corporate culture and take it seriously. What I hope you do, of course. The next one. The next aspect I would like to analyze is the risk intelligence. Very often it is on sleep modus as I often see out in the field. But why is that? Because it's so natural that we would have that specific risk intelligence inside ourselves, every body. But we don't use it. How is the maturity level of risk intelligence on an individual and organizational basis? And I would always start with us as an individual because in organizations are made up by individuals. And if we do not have the risk intelligence on an individual level, we won't have it on an organizational one. And does a speak-up culture exist for that? Because that's also part of risk intelligence. And if so, that the culture exists, what is implemented and are the employees aware of it? And now here we also go back to the first one with the code of conduct. Do they understand it? If we have a speak-up culture, do they know what the processes would be? And if or are they prote protected? And beside these three focus topics we covered right now, pressure, corporate culture and risk intelligence, I would also like to mention that we all are biased. We are sometimes also so social engineered on a daily basis. We are often tired and not adequately trained, which costs us and our company and our fortune if we don't do so. And a lot of employees are not able anymore to trust their int intuition because they don't know how to. And it's also not, um, it's also not an appreciated characteristics within the corporate world. And here I think we have to work, uh, work on. But last question and final tip. How are we now going to implement what we have heard into our practice, into our daily life? I always suggest to make it as tangible as possible. Otherwise, we all know we as humans do not get into action. The following three easily, easy applicable steps could be implemented without asking for a large investment budget. And it will already work towards awareness and prevention. And that's what we want to achieve. 
So, let's analyze your current situation. What do you know about the topic? What are you doing? Or we as an organization, of course, it's always me or the organization. And how actual are the information? Do we have the knowledge to do so? Then our human behavior is the key critical factor. What kind of goals are we setting ourselves? What is the minimum target to be achieved by every leader, by every business leader? See the example and case study we discussed before within our organization and by when. So a goal without target and a deadline is just a wish. That was said by a friend of mine and I can fully support that. And what are the measurements to be taken? What do we need to implement and by when? What kind of investment decision should be taken and who might be the sponsors? Because not having a sponsor is quite difficult in a corporate environment. So the most important learning for this episode is rather a question I offer you as a take-home assignment. And for those who heard the first episode, know that I will always serve you with such a reflection question. Is the human potential underestimated? And when we talk about risks, we always have an upside and a downside. I am convinced that the individual and organizational risk intelligence is not yet enough empowered to protect the assets and the reputation. How do you rate it in your environment? Last but not least, sensitizing needs improvement too. Are we aware? The awareness is still missing and this leads to a collective missing knowledge base which is which also hinders the implementation of the measurements. Because if you are not aware, I think you can also not expect that your employees can understand the code of conduct. Repeating the three key elements steering human behavior related to fraud risk I talked about are pressure, culture, the corporate culture, and risk intelligence. If you take the first initials here, it is a so-called PCR test, which has nothing in common with the actual pandemic, but rather how we protect our business, our stakeholders and our shareholders. With these different parts, you received a good overview of key elements also important to consider in 2022. First, the crisis are not over. Second, as soon as it's over, the next lining is lining up. That is just how life is. With that in mind, I wish you a great start into this new year of 2022. I'm looking forward to having you also in our upcoming shows, listening to our interview guests and the solo format, where I always pick up the topics and questions raised by the community.